Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. And at our church, we talk a lot about wanting to be a part of restoring faith in Jesus and the church. So we want you to know, wherever you find yourself on your spiritual journey, whether you're deconstructing or reconstructing, whether you're disentangling, doubting, rebuilding, no matter where you are, we want you to know that you are not alone. And we want to be a support for you as you journey down this road of faith. So if you have questions or you need support, we would love to chat with you. You can reach out to us through our website at restoreaustin.org. And we hope you enjoy this week's message. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Any of y'all doing uh, resolutions 2023? Pop those hands up. Yeah? Ashamed. That was a lot of, a lot of hands like this. Not as many. Okay. A few resolutions. How about like a word of the year? Any of y'all do word of the year? All right. A few of you. A few of you. How about just general like goals, habits, things, right? We're all kind of doing something like that. That's just kind of the nature of this part of the year, right? It's kind of a new start. We talk about things that we want to do, things we'd like to accomplish. And whether you formalize them or not, most of us have some kind of resolution for the new year. Things like we want to exercise more, or we want to eat healthier, or lose weight, or save money, or spend more time with loved ones, less time on social media, something like that. But I have some bad news. I have some bad news. Did you know that most resolutions fail? Did y'all know that? Nah, did you know that? In fact, 23% of people quit their resolutions by the end of the first week. <laughs> Today is January 8th. So you wanna do the math on that. That means about a quarter of the people who have set resolutions have already abandoned them as we sit here this morning. 64% of people quit by the end of January and only 9% of people make it the whole year. Quarter after the first week, two-thirds quit after the first month, 91% quit before the year is done. Those are not great numbers. Why are we so bad at keeping resolutions? Because even though resolutions are admirable, they are almost always incomplete. Because you see, if our resolutions and goals aren't accompanied by an actual change of lifestyle then they simply won't last. So let me give you an example. Like if your goal is to save money, let's say 200 bucks a month, how do you do it? Well, at the end of the month, you wanna take $200 and put it in your sock drawer, your savings account or something like that. But that idea is not enough, right? How do you actually get the $200 that you're trying to save? How do you spend less? How do you make more? How do you stick to a budget in a culture where about 60% of people spend as much or more than they earn? You see, it can't just be a goal, it has to be a lifestyle. So if you really wanna save money this year, you have to change the way you approach finances all together. Here's the thing, we can't change our practice without changing our posture. We can't change our practices if we don't change our posture, the way we approach life. And the same is true in our spiritual lives. Have you all ever heard of spiritual disciplines? Not if you've heard of, okay? Things like prayer, Bible reading, going to church, giving, etc. things like that. And like resolutions, these things are admirable, but they are incomplete because we usually make them into a checklist instead of a way of living. We try to change our practice without changing our posture. And just like the vast majority of resolutions, it isn't long before we get tired of them or we even grow resentful of them or we just abandon them all together. And I'm convinced we do this because we've too often made Christianity a list rather than a lifestyle. We've made following Jesus a list 
rather than a lifestyle. I don't know about you, but I grew up hearing so much about what a good Christian was supposed to do each day. The boxes I was supposed to check, right? Wake up with the quiet time, pray before all the meals, all of that kind of stuff. But I heard almost nothing about how a follower of Jesus was supposed to like show up in the world, you know? How we were actually supposed to like live and move and interact with our fellow human. It was all about practice and it was not much about posture. What I've come to understand is that our practices are pointless if our posture isn't Christ-like. Our practices are pointless if our posture isn't Christ-like. You see, you can pray before every meal, even when you're out at a restaurant, still be a jerk to the wait staff, right? You can read your Bible every morning and then get in your car, go to work, and exploit people. You can evangelize on the street corners with big signs and megaphones while completely ignoring the people sleeping beneath the overpass 10 feet away. Without Christ-like posture, our practices don't matter. Priest and author Brennan Manning famously said this, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Our practices are pointless if our posture isn't Christ-like. So this morning, we are starting a new teaching series all about our posture. The way a follower of Jesus should live and move in the world. And it's called wholehearted postures. Because who better, better to model our posture after than the one whose name we claim? So for the next few weeks, we're going to look at the way Jesus lived and moved in the world, the, the core postures he chose to exhibit during his time on earth. But first, let me back up and situate this series inside of something bigger that we have going on here at Restore. See, back in August, we started something called a year of healing and wholeness. And it's based on Jesus's words in John 10, 10, where he said he came to bring humanity life and life to the full. But even though that's Christ's desire for all of us, many of us, if not most of us, are not really experiencing that fullness of life day to day. As we continue coming out of the pandemic and grappling with so many difficult things happening in our world and in our personal lives, most of us are feeling some combination of tired and overwhelmed and anxious and stressed. And we aren't exactly sure what to do about it or how our faith is supposed to help that. So that's why we're spending a year diving deeply into how we can experience healing, wholeness, and fullness of life, both as individuals and as a church family. And back in the fall, what we just finished up, we talked about the things that prevent us from experiencing healing and wholeness, like wrong views of who God is, or wrong views of who we are, or sin struggles that get in the way, and we kind of redefine and talked about what does sin really mean according to Scripture, but this spring, as we turn the page, we are talking about not what prevents healing and wholeness, but what promotes it. How do we actually step into this stuff? And the word we're going to be focusing on over these next few months is wholehearted. Wholehearted. So today we're starting this wholehearted posture series. After that, we're going to do a series called wholehearted practices, where we talk about, well, if we have our posture right, then how do we implement some of these practices in our lives that actually help us stay intimately connected to Jesus and serve and love our fellow human? And then we're going to end with wholehearted people. 
I grew up Southern Baptist. I had to get an alliteration in there, you know, wholehearted postures, practices, and people. Sorry. <laughs> Can take the boy out of the Baptist, but not the Baptist out of the boy, I guess. <laughs> and wholehearted people is about a whole church community. What does it look like for us to not just live as individual wholehearted people, but as a community that is wholehearted? What would it look like if we were known for our wholeheartedness here in the city of Austin and all over the place? So what does it really look like to be wholehearted? I think Brene Brown pioneered much of our modern understanding of what it means to practice wholehearted living. And in her groundbreaking book, The Gifts of Imperfection, she says this, the wholehearted journey is not the path of least resistance. It's a path of consciousness and choice. And to be honest, it's a little countercultural. It's the willingness to tell our stories, feel the pain of others, and stay genuinely connected in this disconnected world. It's not something that we can do half-heartedly. To practice courage, compassion, and connection is to look at life and the people around us and say, I'm all in. That's wholehearted living. But in addition to being a professor and best-selling author, Brene Brown is also a Christian, follower of Jesus. She talks regularly about her faith and is deeply committed to not just following Christianity, but to following the way of Jesus. And because of that, I can't help but see how much the words and work of Christ are all over her explanation of wholehearted living. Because y'all, Jesus is truly the embodiment of courage, compassion, connection, and countercultural love. That is who he was. That is who he is. Being a wholehearted person and having a wholehearted faith all starts with how we show up, how we choose to carry ourselves, the postures we choose to inhabit. I think all of us desire to be wholehearted people, right? To live wholehearted lives. We want to be connected. Like Jesus, we want to have a life marked by courage and compassion. We want to be known for this countercultural, sacrificial love. But sometimes I think we struggle with how to do it, you know, especially when we're feeling like a lot of mixed messages that we receive. So that's why for the next few months, we're going to be exploring it together. And like I said, who better to learn wholehearted posture from than Jesus himself? So for the rest of our time together today and for the rest of this series, we're going to look at the core postures that Jesus chose to inhabit during his time on earth, things like tenderness, Love, humility, inclusion, discernment, courage, and joy. This morning, we're kicking it off by talking about how Jesus embodied a posture of faith. A posture of faith. And to figure that out, first we have to ask, what is faith? And this is a vital question because Christians usually equate faith to a set of doctrines that we believe, right? In our kind of post-enlightenment, scientific method-centric world, this is what we've made really the whole of Christianity into, dogmas, doctrines, belief statements. When someone asks, if you are a Christian, what they are almost always asking is, do you believe all of the things I've deemed necessary for Christians to believe, right? And do you believe them in the same way I do? When somebody asks, if you're a Christian, that's really what they're asking, but that is an incredibly recent and I think incredibly shallow understanding of the Christian faith. In his great book called The Sin of Certainty, Pete Enns puts it like this, the life of Christian faith is more than agreeing with a set of beliefs about Christ, morality, or how to read the Bible. It is, means being so intimately connected with Christ that his crucifixion is ours, 
His death is our death and his life is our life, which is hardly something we can grasp with our minds. It has to be experienced. See, faith is something that we embody and experience, not just something we intellectually assent to. It is more than belief. It is a posture, a way of living and moving and showing up in the world, born out of deep connection with Jesus. This shallow understanding of faith as just a set of beliefs also comes with the unintended consequence of setting faith and doubt in opposition with one another. See, because if faith is absolute certainty about our beliefs, then any doubts or questions become an attack on that faith, right? And this explains why we so often see doubts and questions condemned by Christians. But the opposite of faith, y'all, is not doubt. In fact, I believe the opposite of faith is certainty. If I'm absolutely sure about everything I believe, if I live life in complete certainty, then placing my trust in God and choosing to follow Jesus becomes unnecessary at that point. If I've got it all figured out, if I don't ever have a question or a doubt or a struggle or anything like that, what do I really need to trust God for then? I also feel confident saying that the opposite of faith isn't doubt because even Jesus had questions. Even Jesus had doubts. Even Jesus wrestled with his faith. And we see this most clearly on the night before he died on the cross in the garden of Gethsemane. So with the rest of our time together, we're going to be in Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. The verses will be on the screen in a second, but you can also turn in your Bibles or phones if you want to follow along there. But before we look at the text, I want to set the scene for us a little bit. Jesus and his closest friends have just finished the Last Supper. This is their celebration of the Passover meal. And during this dinner, Jesus repeatedly tells his friends that he is about to die. But they don't really understand, right? They thought Jesus had come to Jerusalem to coalesce an army and to defeat the occupying Romans, thereby setting Israel free and ushering in the reign of Jesus as king. And they believe this even though Jesus repeatedly told them things like, my kingdom is not of this world and my body will be broken and my blood will be poured out and I'm about to die over and over and over again. Side note, sometimes just like the disciples, we have been so conditioned to believe something about God that we keep on believing it even when Jesus clearly teaches the exact opposite thing. This is very true of the human condition. Okay, back to the story. After dinner, Jesus and his disciples head over to the Garden of Gethsemane. We pick it up, Mark 14, verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Those words that Jesus says, translated distressed and troubled, and it's talking about how he was feeling, they literally mean to be overcome with fear and grief. See, Jesus knows that the time of his death is upon him, that he's about to face the horrors of crucifixion on a Roman cross, and he is understandably terrified. So what does he do? Verse 35, keep going. He went on a little farther and he fell to the ground. And he prayed that, if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Take this cup of suffering 
away from me. If faith is unquestioning certainty, then Jesus has lost his faith here. He's anxious. He's overwhelmed. He's scared. He's questioning the plan. He doesn't seem to believe this to be the only way or possibly even the right way. So he's asking God the Father to change it. He's saying, I don't want to do this, God. I know everything is possible for you. Don't make me do this. Take this away from me. Luke's version says that Jesus is so distressed here in the Garden of Gethsemane that he actually starts sweating blood. Absolutely nothing about this story leads us to believe that Jesus is practicing unquestioning certainty. But thankfully, unquestioning certainty is not the same thing as faith. In fact, as we've already said, it's actually the opposite of faith. So then what is faith? And what does it look like to have a a posture of faith, especially when you're in the middle of questions and doubts and fear and grief? Well, Jesus shows us the very next verse, verse 36. Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will be done. That, my friends, is faith. Not what I will, but what you will, God, be done. See, faith is simply choosing to trust God. And I want to point out something vitally important here. You see, Jesus didn't just trust God the Father with the outcome of the situation. Jesus trusted God with his questions and his anger and his grief. How incredible is that? He didn't start with whatever you want, God, whatever it is. He started with the questions. He started with the fears. He started with the grief. When Erin Moon was on our summer mixtape last year, she said something that stuck with me so viscerally. She said, God's chest is big enough to beat on. And it's true. God's chest is big enough for us to beat on. God's shoulders are big enough for you to cry on. God is big enough to handle all of our questions, our doubts, our fears, our frustrations. Because God isn't some volatile genie in the sky just waiting to berate us when we step out of line. God is a perfect parent who loves us unconditionally. A faithful friend who is always trustworthy. I love how Jesus' best friend John says it later in Scripture. We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. God is love. That's what faith is. Faith is putting our trust in God and God's love. Recently, a rabbi friend invited me to her synagogue because she was teaching a class on world religions. You might remember Kelly, Rabbi Kelly. She was up here with Imam Atiyah, and we did our little multi-faith thing. She's awesome. For almost two hours, I sat with a group of Jewish folks, and I did my best to answer their questions about Christianity. We also talked about how do we partner together to fight against anti-Semitism and and other religious extremism and hate and things like that. It, It was a blast. It was a blast. But one thing really stuck out to me during my time at the synagogue See, after it was finished, a few people hung around and we chatted a little bit. And a woman came up to me and she said, I don't know how you do it. And that could mean a lot of things, right? 
And so I asked her to clarify, you know, how do I do what? What are you talking about? And she said, I don't know how you ascribe to a religion that's based on faith. It seems so fickle and, and unsettling to me. And she went on to explain that Judaism is based on covenant. God is in covenant with Jewish folks, and there's absolutely nothing they can do to earn it or lose it because it's based on God's faithfulness, not theirs. All they have to do is to trust God. And so I said, how do you see that as different from faith in the Christian tradition? And she said, well, I used to be a Christian. So I know that faith is all about believing the right things. And every time I would have a doubt or a question, my pastor would just shame me for not having enough faith. Just tell me to pray more, just to believe harder. It was so traumatizing, she said. I found so much peace in Judaism because no matter how many doubts or struggles I have, no matter how strong or weak my faith is, I know God's got me and I can trust him. I told her I was so sorry about the pain she was put through at her church and glad that she's found peace in Judaism, but that my understanding of faith was actually very similar to her explanation of covenant. See, it's God's work that matters most not the consistency or the quality of my belief. What counts is the object of our faith, not the amount of our faith. Like Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.13, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So I said goodbye to everyone from the synagogue, and when I got in my car and, and drove away, I couldn't shake that last conversation. And I kept thinking about how that woman had been so hurt by faith being wrongly equated with unquestioning certainty. Then I began thinking about just how many people have walked away, not just from a Christian church, but from God altogether because of terrible teachings on what it means to have faith, what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a Christian. It's heartbreaking, it's angering. So if you've missed everything else that I've said this morning, please don't miss this. Faith is not unquestioning belief in a set of doctrines. Faith is trusting God and trusting God's love. Faith is trusting God with our questions, with our doubts, with our anger, with our changing beliefs, with our deconstruction and our reconstruction, with our, our broken selves and our broken situation in this big, broken world. Faith is choosing to trust God and his love. Faith is choosing to say, God, I'm struggling. I hate this. Take this away, if at all possible. But not my will. Yours be done. I don't know of anyone who describes what it looks like to embody a posture of faith like this better than Rachel Held Evans. So I want to leave you with a few passages from her last book, so aptly titled, Wholehearted Faith. Now, wherever you are on the journey of faith this morning, I just hope that this is helpful. So I want you to feel free to close your eyes or bow your head or do whatever else will help you. Just kind of let these words soak in. No pressure, but if you want to, you totally can. It's a long passage. It's not going to be on the screen. I'm just going to read it over you. She says, on the days when I believe, I feel enfolded in a story so much greater than my own. 
It's a story that knits together a thousand generations of saints, which is to say folks like you and me who wrestle with their questions and their doubts, who interrogate the systems and structures of the society around them, who search for a way to make sense of it all, and who wonder whether they belong or whether they are loved. It's a story that makes the audacious claims about a man-God named Jesus and calls us into his outstretched arms. On the days when I believe a prayer feels as if it's just another beautiful beat in a long-running conversation, nothing is withheld. Everything finds its place, whether lament or hallelujah. I'm convinced it is all heard because it's a whisper into the ear of an attentive God who loves me and whom I love. For better or for worse, there are seasons when we hold our faith and then there are seasons when our faith holds us. In those latter instances, I am more thankful than ever for all the saints past and present who said yes and whose faith sustains mine. They believe for me when I'm not sure if I can believe. They hold on to hope for me when I'm sure that I've run out. Wholeheartedness is about seeing and comprehending my place in a bigger family of faith. I am a Christian, not because of anything I've done, but because a teenage girl. Because a teenage girl living in occupied Palestine at one of the most dangerous moments in history said yes. Yes to God. Yes to a wholehearted call she could not possibly understand. Yes to vulnerability in the face of societal judgment. Yes to the considerable risk of pregnancy and childbirth. Yes to clogged milk ducts and spit up in her hair and hundreds of middle of the night feedings. Yes to scary fevers and learning as you go and all the first century equivalents of bad advice from WebMD. Yes to a vision for herself and her little boy of a mission that would bring down the rulers and lift up the humble, that would turn away the rich and fill the hungry with good things, that would scatter the proud and gather the lowly. Yes to a life that came with no guarantee of her safety or her son's. The core Christian conviction that God is with us, plain, ordinary us. God is with us in our fears and in our pain in our morning sickness and our ear infections, in our refugee crises and in our endurance of empire, in smelly barns and unimpressive backwater towns, in the labor pains of a new mother and the cries of a tiny infant. In all these things, God is with us and God is for us. Sorry, I always have trouble getting through that. That's what faith is to me. It's choosing to trust that on the days when I believe and on the days when I don't, when I struggle, when I doubt, when I question to let somebody else, my neighbor, my friend, my family carry that faith for me and lift me up. That's why we're all here together doing this thing because a posture of faith doesn't work alone. A posture of faith is meant to be inhabited in community with people who love you and accept you and hold you close. So I, I just want you to know that if you've been here for the seven years that we've been around or if today is your very first day, I would love for you to be a part of that if you wanna be. 
trusting God and God's love and trusting God and God's love in my neighbor has been the best thing that I've ever experienced. I want it for you. No pressure, no altar call, nothing like that. I just want you to know I care about you and I want it for you if you don't have it. Sorry, none of that was in the sermon. I'm going to pray and then we're going to stand or sit or whatever and we're going to sing about this God who loves us so much and whose love we can trust. Lord God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for these folks. The folks here in this room, the folks next door, the kids, the people supporting and loving and teaching the kids, the folks watching online, this big, beautiful, messy community of faith. I'm so grateful to be a part of it. And I pray that, like Rachel said, that we would learn how to trust you, to trust your love, to trust your work in this world, no matter what it is that we're walking through. That like Jesus in Gethsemane, in the Gethsemane moments of our life, God, that we would not be afraid to pour out our questions and doubts and fears and struggles and frustration and anger to you because you can handle it because you are trustworthy. But at the end of the day, I pray that we would like Jesus, stand up, step forward, trust you in this posture of faith. God, because we know that you have our best and humanity's best in mind. You and your love are trustworthy. Help us place our faith in it. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.